Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Clean Tech, a roundup of the week's biggest stories you need to know in climate and clean energy in 15 minutes or less, unless Mike Casey tells rambling (laughs) stories in the middle of story number three again this week. Um, Today is Friday, February 16th, 2024. I'm Renewable Energy World Editor-in-Chief John Ingle. We'll have Maeve Alsup from Latitude Media joining us very shortly with a really interesting story on the, the early stumbles of virtual power plants and what we need to do to, to get them right. But for now, I'm joined once again by clean tech PR veteran Mike Casey of Tigercom. Hello, Mike. Hello, sir. Are you looking forward to uh, Grid Tech in Orlando and our live episode down there? Grid Tech and D Tech. And it looks like for those listening, you don't see um, the how Mike is dressed right now, but you looked more prepared to take on the slopes of a, you know, like a black diamond in Aspen than you do to go to Florida <laughs> and join me in Orlando. It's a little cold up here, just saying. But uh, hey, John, the good news is Claire says we have 427 people who signed up for the happy hour you've you've underwritten at Grid Tech. Nicely done, sir. I wanted to say I think it's very generous, and yeah, that's, uh, I'm looking that's, forward to it. That's not a real number. Again, you can't trust PR agencies, <laughs> but um, I, it's a conference, Mike. I, I still don't know what we're digging at here. We've got plenty of booze, plenty of food. You'll, you'll, you'll get both of those at, uh, at Distribute Tech and Grid Tech. All right, we want to thank our listeners who each week are sending in those story recommendations and their nominations for Clean Tecker of the Week, which we will get to later in the episode. Send those along to rew at clarionevents.com, and we'll have a link in the episode description as well. All right, Mike, all bundled up and cozy. Get us started. (laughs) All right. uh, Janice Smilek and Anna Swanson, the New York Times, report, this Arctic Circle town expected a green energy boom, then came Bidenomics. Over to you, John. Yeah, I, I actually didn't do that on purpose where I was making snow and um, winter garment jokes uh, <laughs> leading into an Arctic Circle story. But after decades of free trade being the international norm, countries are starting to put their thumb on the scale to make sure they aren't left behind in clean energy. I wonder why. China dominates a lot of clean technology production, EVs, solar panels, wind turbines, and much of the upstream materials those industries rely on. And in response, a, a And a combination of tariffs and now the Inflation Reduction Act incentives are are really driving clean energy companies to shift production from other countries to the U.S. And they don't seem too happy about that, Mike. We are in the early stages of what I'm going to declare is a great rethinking of the last several decades push to have free trade kind of consequences be damned. Uh, The EU is finding its way in the face of these new policies from the U.S., Canada and India. And while it wants free trade within the EU, it's enabled its member governments to act uh, to offer competing policies, just not on the scale with the U.S.'s Inflation Reduction Act. And 
to be clear, I don't think anybody's advocating a return to the protectionist barrier race of the early 20th century. But I do think it's critical that we diversify the supply chain of clean energy technologies while continuing to cut carbon pollution sources as fast as possible. John, story number two. Story number two from E&E News titled, California Could Make or Break the Western Grid. Mike? Connecting the state and regional electricity markets can speed clean energy deployment, no doubt about that. It increases the range of potential buyers when renewables are generating power. It increases reliability and it lowers costs. But it's easier to say this than to actually do it. And right now there are two competing proposals uh, to inc- to uh, pursue this. One is out of California, spans 11 states. And it's already been approved by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. There's a competing proposal from Arkansas across 14 states that does not include California, but would require significantly more transmission to be built. Power providers in some Western states um, are concerned about being subject to oversight from California regulators, and they're working to uh, comply with stricter carbon reduction goals. John, what do you think? It's a really interesting one. It's been talked about for for quite some time. The West-wide market has yet to make a decision on which approach to take, but they are eager to get a, a framework finalized. It's important that we get this figured out. Integrating the grid will be critical for adding more renewables at a lower cost, protecting people from blackouts in situations like Winter Storm Uri, keeping keeping costs down. And California already operates as an ISO, independent system operator. But the idea here is to broaden that to an RTO, which on its face is um, identical to an ISO, but would, would include neighbors and, and partners to do um, you know power sharing that way in a more equitable way. Mike, what's our third story? Oliver Millman from The Guardian uh, just got a story out with the title, The World is Reducing Its Reliance on Fossil Fuels Except for in Three Key Sectors. John, what do you think? Yeah, we've made really good progress with developing and deploying technology that will decarbonize electricity generation and electric vehicles over the last decade. But three sectors uh, we're still falling short in, aviation, shipping, and heavy industry. Mike, what did you take away from this one? Yeah, I think... I think this is a uh, a case where context is everything. So aviation and shipping, we don't have cost-effective alternative fuels just yet, even though we've heard about sustainable aviation fuels. They're, they're really not at scale. So yes, we should invest more in to get these technologies off the ground. But I think the context is crucial. The real place to focus on is heavy industry. They are big sources of carbon pollution. And I think that's where the lion's share of the focus should be. Uh, the good news is that we leverage um, a lot of the progress we made with cleaning up electricity and transportation, and we can use those lessons to replicate what's worked and apply it to these other sectors. John, what do you think about our fourth story? We have a story here from Heatmap News titled, Fervo Energy is Quickly Making Geothermal Cheaper. It's a company we like. What do you think, Mike? Uh, long-term listeners of this show, we're going to recall the name Fervo Energy. It's the company that figured out how to use advances in fracking to set up geothermal pretty much anywhere. So in 2022, it took them 71 days to drill a geothermal well. They just announced that it now takes 21 days with wells that are 2,000 feet deeper. So that's a 70% cut in their drilling time. To produce electricity at scale, it's, it takes fast drilling, and Furbo's really on their way to making this reality. I think, they're, it's, I think it's safe to say they're the most prominent of these new generation geothermal companies. 
John, what do you think? Yeah, and there are a few. I'm glad you pointed that out. And I think they're raising money fairly easily. So they're starting to get some momentum around, you know, enhanced geothermal um, development. The company, so Fervo went from $9.4 million a well to $4.8 million a well. So uh, nearly having their their costs there. And their Utah site, which I believe is under uh, a PPA with Google involving uh, 29 wells, so that with those cost savings baked in, that's $130 million in savings for this project. Progress like this with enhanced geothermal is is really exciting because it's an indication that this may follow a similar technological learning curve that we've seen with, with other technologies. Okay, Mike, no NIMBY story this week, so we've saved a lot of time for our reporter <laughs> guests. You have not had a, a soapbox to stand on, so let's get to the fifth one. Well, and John, I, I want to just note, I, I don't think we should t- chew up the remaining time talking about hobbies because uh, I am getting worried this is where you, your fame is going to your head on the show. So hmm. we're going to bring up Maeve Alice up right now. She's with Latitude Media, and um, she's got a story titled, Under the Hood of pg e Summer VPP Pilot with Sunrun. Hey, Maeve, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, people who have not read this story yet, what's the big takeaway that they think you think they should draw from reading your work? Yeah, the big takeaway, um, we did sort of an under-the-hood look at a three-month virtual power plant pilot that PG&E and Sunrun ran last summer with um, 8,500 homes. It was a permanent load-shifting pilot. So essentially, for a two-hour window in the evening, Every day across three months last summer, um, Sun enrolled Sunrun customers, um, you know, discharged their batteries, handed them over to PG&E for that time. So, Maeve, you you mentioned in the piece that there were these technical gremlins that kind of plagued uh, one of these, you know, early virtual power plants. And you also noted that Sunrun is is aided in having that third party ownership model. So maybe they even avoid uh, avoided other gremlins that may be there. But w- what were some of those snafus along the way that they're they're um, uncovering and, and maybe trying to fix for future programs? Yeah, absolutely. And I love the term technical gremlins. And I, I, I can't when take I, credit. When I read that, <laughs> I was like, how did you get a utility to tell you a, a brilliant phrase like technical gremlins. <laughs> I'll be I'll be using it from now forward. Yeah. But yeah, that that was great. I think the main kind of technical snafu or, or unexpected challenge that they ran into um, were several batteries that failed to deploy each day. So unresponsive batteries. And from the PG&E side, it sounds like there wasn't really a big trend line as to which batteries failed to respond when. Um, but I think one important thing to note here, and you referenced it, is that all of these households, all 8,500 households, these are existing Sunrun customers. So they were not starting that customer relationship from scratch. Um, and, and this is one of the benefits that I think Sunrun would point to of that third-party model um, is that you know, to, to the benefit of PG&E, they were able to retain a lot of important customer data. There were really low churn rates here, um, in part because these were households who were already under the Sunrun umbrella. Maeve, do you have a sense of what this is, what this could mean for Sunrun, which has hit on some tough times recently, and what it could mean for VPP arrangements going forward? Yeah, let me let me start with your second question first. And I think ultimately for VPPs to be deployed at scale and 
to be deployed at the kind of scale that DOE and others are pointing towards, they need to really work for a wide range of utilities and a wide range of use cases, scenarios. And this, I think, is a pilot that a lot of people had their eyes on, in part because PG&E is huge, right? So in terms of size, largest investor-owned utility in the country, it's a little bit of an outlier. And, you know, if Sunrun can build a model that works for PG&E and for smaller utilities on the other end of the spectrum, for them, that is a win. So I think ultimately, you know, this is a pilot. This is a really crucial data point for other utilities in the country as far as figuring out how this could work, what business models work, are how willing customers are to hand over control of their batteries. Um, and also, you know, we've touched on the technical snafus to get a sense of where technical challenges will pop up when they happen. So this is a really, really important baseline. Um, for Sunrun, I mean, I think their big takeaway was that simplicity and predictability in this particular program, I mean, it was the same two hours every day. Customers really didn't have to do a whole lot to participate, and they got a $750 check in the mail, right? So I think for them, they are really seeing this as figuring out what is the best way to keep customers engaged in these opt-in programs. And they are looking to replicate this exact program. I mean, that was sort of the main takeaway from these these two calls that I had was, you know, Sunrun said they are looking to replicate this right now, particularly with community choice aggregators in California. Um, so they say this, you know, this is the epitome of flexibility. They can deploy it for PG&E. They can deploy it for a small utility in Puerto Rico, and they can get it up and running in six months. The, oh, you wait, Mike. I get one. We go back and forth. This is like a tennis match. Um, I, Maeve, I want to dig into that journey a little bit more because I think it's, uh, you know, Mike asked about the Sunrun experience, but thinking about PG&E, there's, there's a lot that's unique about this program. One of the big ones being there was no integration across Sunrun and PG&E right. systems. So, Virtual power plants appear to be one of the hottest topics in our space right now. Jiggershaw loves to talk about um, uh, virtual power plants at the DOE loan programs office. But at the same time, Sunrun operated and dispatched. Like you said, there was that routine of the same two hours every day. PG&E was not controlling those assets. And so I'm, I'm trying to frame, like, where are we at in terms of reaching this full potential? When we talk about VPPs being the Swiss army knife, you know, some of the earliest ones are still very siloed. Others are demand response programs with just a sexier name now. Um, did you get a grasp for that from PG&E about, like, what they think they can do with this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I like the term Swiss army knife. For PG&E, they made it very clear that this was a discrete program. This was through funding from the California Public Utilities Commission. It was really targeted at, you know, mitigating some of the challenges that PG&E has had in these really hot summer months. So this was not kind of a, a smart response program. As you noted, this was just load shifting two hours every day, and it meets a really specific need, but it isn't uh, the model of kind of a Swiss Army knife VPP. So PG&E has run other VPP pilots. This is this is not the only one. And while they're not looking to replicate this exact pilot next summer, it sounds like, um, basically what they told me is this was incredibly valuable in terms of the data that they are coming away with, that they're now going to integrate into other 
longstanding programs, including other pilots. Um, but because this was kind of a a one-off funding program, they're really looking at this as kind of a learning experience to integrate elsewhere into the utility. John, with with your humble permission, I you would may like proceed. to bring out. The- Thank you, sir. Maeve, I have to do this on this show occasionally. All right. If the great man says I can close out the show, I'd say we're going to be about out of time here. So before we wrap, we're going to go to Clean Tech of the Week and a um, little something different here. This week's featured person doesn't work in clean tech. He works in the science and on the science that's in effect call for our entire set of sectors to be created. He's Michael Mann, the world-renowned climatologist who is who – is, um, attacked by two hacks from the fossil fuel lobby over a decade ago. They defamed Dr. Mann by comparing his climatological work uh, to being a child molester. Well, according to a federal court, these two clowns now owe Dr. Mann a million dollars. So it's a shame that Dr. Mann had to endure this propaganda in the first place, that it took him 12 years to get justice. But for sticking with it, for not giving up on the truth and principles, we are naming Michael Mann our honorary clean Techer of the week. Congratulations, sir. You deserve it. Yeah. Good pick, Mike. I want to give a shout out to our terrific producer, Brian Mendez, and Alex Peterson and Claire Quirin for helping us identify this week's top stories. Yeah, and thank you to Maeve for joining this episode of This Week in Clean Tech. Check out all those stories that we mentioned in the episode description, including Maeve's, and subscribe and give us that feedback. Monday's episode of Factor This, I mentioned last week, we've got Intersect Power CEO Sheldon Kimber, who is never short of uh, uh, opinions. He, he wants you to throw out everything you know about clean energy development and says we need a fresh business model in order to survive and thrive. So you don't want to miss that one. Mike, see you next week. Goodbye, sir. Take care. Thank you, Maeve. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.